Well, when my abuelita, my grandmother on the Gonzalez side, died about 10 years ago, my parents moved a peach tree from her property to theirs. But truth be told, this, uh, this tree hardly qualified to be called a tree. It was about maybe two feet high. It had no branches. It had no leaves. And it certainly had no peaches. It really looked more like they were just moving a stick rather than a tree. <laughs> and uh, I, re- I remember when they did this and I saw the thing. And I-, I think there were two of them. And one went to my other grandmother's house. And um, I thought, there is no way this thing is going to survive. I don't even think it's alive now. I mean, this is just a dead stick. Well, just uh, earlier last month, uh, Heather and I were visiting my folks, staying with them for a while, and I was astounded at the tree that stick had become. It's now almost 10 feet high. It has enough branches to partially block their driveway, which is annoying, uh, but, it's th- but it's there. And it is absolutely full of peaches, some of which get to be about the size of a softball. I mean, these are huge peaches and very, very sweet, too. They're, they're, they're excellent. What a difference good gardening and a bit of time makes. Clearly, my parents knew what they were doing. By contrast, I am a terrible gardener. Every time I try to plant or transplant flowers, fruits, or vegetables, I end up with dead sticks and a bunch of empty pots. So that's, that's, that's me as a gardener, unlike my folks. Well, in today's epistle uh, from Galatians 5, St. Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And if we want to see the fruit of the Spirit, we cannot live by the flesh. If we want our faith, our Christian walk to grow and to flourish, and for us to know God better, our lives cannot be characterized by the works of the flesh. So open in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, Galatians 5, 16, and this is in your prayer book on page 209. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Well, from the outset, we see that St. Paul is setting up a dichotomy, a contrast. The spirit versus the flesh. And we need to be clear from the beginning that in the context of Galatians, flesh doesn't mean our physical bodies, but rather our fallen nature, the corruption of our humanity. St. Paul means the sinfulness with which we all struggle. St. John Chrysostom points out that in this passage, the body is not an agent. It's not doing the work, but rather it is acted upon. Things are being done. We're doing things to our bodies in this passage. Because desire, these sinful desires, spring up from our souls. It's not my little finger doing this. You know, it's something that from, comes from the inside. Commenting upon the passage, he writes, this is not a condemnation of the body, but a reproach of the apathetic soul. Well, in Latin, the desires of the flesh uh, turns into a word that we get in English as concupiscence. You may have heard that word, concupiscence. Our articles of religion devote a full article to driving home this issue. So uh, Article 9, and that's on page 604 in your prayer book, Article 9, 604. 
It says, Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but it is the fault and corruption of nature, of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit. And therefore, in every person born into this world, it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. And this infection of nature doth remain, yea, in them that are regenerated, that is, in Christians. Whereby the lust of the flesh, called in Greek phronema sarkos, which some do expound the wisdom, some the sensuality, some the affection, some the desire of the flesh, is not subject to the law of God. And although there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, yet the, article, the apostle doth confess that concupiscence and lust hath of itself the nature of sin. So in other words, original sin is not just following bad examples, but rather it's a corruption of our very nature, something we inherit from our first parents. And sin is still a problem for baptized Christians, even though we can be assured that we've been redeemed. Despite the biblical assurance of our salvation, we are still drawn toward the works of the flesh, even after coming to Christ and walking with him for years and years. And that desire for the flesh, that concupiscence, has the nature of sin itself. This is a fight we all must deal with. That's why the church here on earth is called the church militant. It's called the church that is still fighting. The reformer Martin Luther writes, it's clear from this passage that the Christian walk, it's clear from this passage that the Christian life is a trial, a warfare, and a struggle. It is also clear how those who are doing battle must be trained so that they do not despair if they are not entirely free from the temptation to sin if they are not entirely free from temptation. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very generous there, Martin. <laughs> well, the training that Luther is talking about is what St. Paul refers to as walking in the spirit. True spiritual warfare is resisting the desires of the flesh, resisting temptation, and rather loving God and loving our neighbor. St. John Chrysostom writes, See how St. Paul also shows us a better way. It makes virtue uncomplicated and rightly accomplishes what he has previously said, a way that brings forth love and is sustained by love. For nothing, nothing makes people so lovable as to be formed by the Spirit. And nothing so causes the Spirit to abide in us as the strength of love. After having stated the cause of the illness, he also shows the remedy that bestows health. And we need to be clear that St. Paul, St. John Chrysostom, and Martin Luther are not addressing unbelievers here. They're talking about believers. They're talking about baptized Christians. This is an issue that we deal with. Um, loving the Lord and loving our neighbor is what helps us as Christians grow. But it's not the gospel. You know, the gospel is not love God, love your neighbor. That's actually the law, right? That's the summary of the law. The, the gospel is what we need in order to fulfill that. The unbeliever needs the gospel, and they need the law to show them why they need the gospel. 
but uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's besides what St. Paul is saying here. So I, just, I do want to make that clear. We're not talking about uh, unbelievers here. We're talking about Christians. Well, St. Paul does continue in the epistle by telling us about the works of the flesh. So turn to verse 19 uh, in, in our passage. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, this is a frightening set of verses. Who isn't guilty of at least something on that list? Or, frankly, who isn't guilty of several somethings on that list? And then we have that final clause, and things like these. I'll let your imaginations and your conscience fill in the blank there. (laughs) When we read something like this, we can easily be tempted to fall into two errors. Again, we're talking to Christians here, right? The first is an attempt to self-justify, to find excuses or extenuating circumstances, to try and escape the sting of our conscience. You know, after we, we might say, well, after all, who doesn't cohabitate before marriage these days? Or was it really enmity or strife when I was just trying to look out for myself? Or who doesn't have uh, a bit too much or way too much to drink from time to time? That sort of reasoning is extremely dangerous because that sort of reasoning keeps us from repentance. When God's law confronts you with your sin, don't make excuses, but rather humble yourself and go to God. That's the heart of repentance. That's the core of the Christian life. We are people that repent. That's that's what we are. The other temptation, the second side of the coin, is to despair, to be in constant fear of losing your salvation and to worry that you have sinned your way out of the kingdom of God. That's also dangerous reasoning because it equally takes your eyes off God and it puts your eyes onto your performance or lack thereof. Again, the solution is to repent. Don't despair, but repent and remember the promises of your baptism. So eloquently articulated and summarized in that passage from the article of religion that we read, there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized. And, of course, that's also something that St. Paul tells us in in his epistles. Well, this issue of sin after baptism is also addressed in the articles. The article 16 on page 605 in your prayer book, it reads like this. Not every deadly sin willingly committed after baptism is a sin against the Holy Ghost and unpardonable. Wherefore, the grant of repentance is not to be denied to such as fall into sin after baptism. After we have received the Holy Ghost, we may depart from grace given and fall into sin. And by the grace of God, we may arise again and amend our lives. Repentance is always an option. I mean, the article isn't telling us we should fall away, but it's telling us we do. Many of us have. But repentance is always an option. And if you're afraid that you may have committed the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, uh, don't worry so much. 
Because the very fact that you're thinking about it proves you haven't done it. The, 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 the reason why blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unpardonable is because the nature of that particular blasphemy is that it sears your conscience so that you will never repent. It's, it, it hardens your heart so that you will never come to God. That's basically blowing off the, the, the Holy Spirit when he convicts you of sin. It's loving those works of the flesh so much that you walk away from the Lord's table and you refuse ever to come back. Well, let's look at the other side of the coin, the fruits of the Spirit. Verse 22 in our passage, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Notice that St. Paul doesn't speak of the works of the Spirit, but of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control always grow from the inside out. This is the result of the Lord implanting and nurturing the faith that justifies us. Article 12 of our Articles of Religion says, albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away sins and endure the severity of God's judgment. In other words, in of themselves, our good works don't do much. Yet, that's, this is a good yet, Yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively, that is, living faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith be, may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. When my parents got that sapling from my grandmother, they didn't go buy some peaches and glue them on the tree. <laughs> We all know fruit doesn't work like that. No, instead, they planted it into the ground. They gave it good soil. They watered it. They fertilized it. They nurtured it. And it took a long time. In fact, my father told me this last time we were visiting, that he followed the pattern from the Old Testament um, of not harvesting it for several years. And then when it was, after those several years were done, he let his friends and neighbors and family come and uh, take the fruit rather than taking it himself. Well, our good works are kind of like that. They're ultimately for our neighbors. God doesn't need our good works. Our neighbor does. The works of the flesh, on the other hand, are, are essentially selfish. And they don't water that little tree of, of our faith. So if you don't see the fruit of the Spirit in your life, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, if you don't see the fruit of the Spirit in your life, chances are you've been work, walking, working in the flesh rather than walking in the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit might just be a little bud. It might not yet be a full-grown peach. But if there's nothing, if it's just a stick, 
you might be working in the flesh rather than, rather than walking in the Spirit. And if you've been baptized, you belong to Christ. That's what our baptism means. That you belong to Christ, and that means you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk with him. You have the power to exercise your faith. You've come to Christ and are baptized. And if you're not walking with him, then it's very simple. You know, St. John Chrysostom said it's not complicated. You repent, turn from your sin, and come back to Jesus by faith. It may take a long time to see that fruit, but eventually you will see the fruit and it'll eventually be even bigger than my folks' softball-sized peaches. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Remember the words of the Lord, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs>